Hello, I'm Jen Choi. Welcome to Voices of Private Equity, a podcast hosted by ILPA, the Institutional Limited Partners Association. In this series, through candid conversations with the people who power this amazing industry, we go beyond the labels and the headlines. Join me in getting to know the individuals who are shaping the future of private equity. In today's episode, we're revisiting a compelling conversation about diversity, equity, and inclusion we first had at the ILPA Summit in November 2020 with Orlando Bravo and Teresa Whitmarsh. Orlando's the founder and managing partner of Toma Bravo, an industry leader in the software buyout sector with 260 acquisitions to date. Teresa Whitmarsh is the executive director of the Washington State Investment Board. Teresa joined the board in 2003, and today she and her team are entrusted with managing $120 billion in assets on behalf of Washington public employees in the state, which includes a 48% allocation to private assets. Teresa, you were so engaged in the early days of the conversation around diversity in our industry. You're one of the very first members of ILPA's Diversity and Inclusion Council. And I know at the beginning, we were all really focused on gender with the Me Too movement being catalytic. But you've talked about how we broaden the lens and the conversation has moved more to embrace ethnic and racial diversity. Can you talk about the journey that you've taken, that Washington has taken, when you think about DNI? I think, you know, it started out, my original interest in gender equity was really, I mean, obviously it's something I've focused on my entire career, but the fact that we are a large allocator to private equity and private assets, I saw a number of presentations by GPs over my 17 years that I've been at the State Investment Board, and there was rarely a woman in the room other than maybe the investor relations person, and I don't want to minimize that because those are critical roles, but rarely did you see anyone on the deal team or even in any kind of senior partner position uh, that was female observing that for years, and then I had an opportunity to attend uh, the World Economic Forum to the annual meeting in Davos, and was just shocked at how few women uh, were present. I think they said there's about 15, 16% of the attendees are women. And within the private equity industry, which were a lot of the meetings I participated in, I was often the only woman in the room other than the World Economic Forum staff. So I ended up speaking out fairly vocally at a couple different meetings that first year in Davos. And, uh, and I couldn't help myself. It wasn't like I came in with a mission to speak out on gender equity, but there were just opportunities that presented and I spoke out and I was amazed at the positive response I got from the GPs who all basically said, this is a conundrum for us. We, we want to do better. We need to do better, but we have a very difficult time recruiting. Uh, a lot of women aren't interested in our industry. Some of the work hours, the travel sometimes are not compatible. When they do hire women, they're not able to retain them. And I didn't look at those as excuses. I looked at those as true challenges, structural challenges for our GPs. And so I started a conversation with the World Economic Forum saying, let's pull together some of the leading GPs and LPs, and let's just kind of peel the onion. Let's figure out what are the actual structural challenges and see if we can't come up with practical solutions. And so we did that. We held a couple of workshops. And then of course, ILPA, we pulled in fairly early in those discussions. The GPs essentially said to me, if you ask for this, we will do it. <laughs> so we all know LP pressure uh, on GPs is it works. So, you know, that was a, sort of the initial reason for pulling ILPA into the discussion. 
But it was actually ILPA, though, I have to hand it to you and your colleagues that said, well, if we're going to participate in, in this kind of initiative, let's broaden it to ethnic diversity, LGBTQ, et cetera. And so I thought that was great. The reason I chose private equity and gender equity was simply because I felt like I had a platform and I had experience in that and I was able to speak out on it. But my board also really helped me understand that since we do have a platform and we've been successful with gender equity, that we really did have an obligation as leaders uh, to expand that. So that's a little bit of both my personal journey and the WSIB's journey. I want to bring Orlando in. Teresa said that the GPs told her if LPs ask for it, that's what will make the difference, right? The conventional wisdom we've always had is that it's the LP push that brings about behavior change. But I'm curious, Orlando, do you think that's true? Uh, Do you think that it should be the LPs pushing for progress and diversity and inclusion? What's What's the role of the GPs here? My answer to that is absolutely yes. I find that most general partners like ourselves really listen to our LPs. You have to keep your eyes open, your ears open, and your heart open for new challenges and really how you can add more value to your partners other than just net investment returns. So I feel the limited partner really insisting on a set of standards causes a change of behavior. Now, having said that, and we did that in our organization, what is the role of the GP? Well, there are two two ways you can look at this is, one is from the perspective of performance. If you have a culture that focuses on performance, then you have to peel that back and say, why have we been performing? And it's due to the way our people think, the way our people behave, and are those ways consistent with having a monolithic organization, a lack of diversity, so to speak. And it's not. So you wanna further your culture for performance reasons and and this is part of what it takes. Now, on the other side of it, the social responsibility angle, one of the things we did to get buy-in was we got everybody in a room and we asked all of our colleagues, we all know what's going on in the world. I have a question. Do you want to be in an organization that says, yeah, that's a problem, but it's not for us to solve? Let somebody else deal with that. Or do you want to be in an organization that leads and is part of doing something about it? And of course, everybody would raise their hand and it's the latter. So the GPs have a social responsibility as well as entrepreneurs, as innovators, as the people that are given all these opportunities to them, these blank checks over a long period of time to create and make things better, that is a key aspect of it. Just to follow up on that, Orlando, you paint a really compelling business case, performance case for why caring about diversity matters and sort of the moral case for doing it. And in the kind of culture and employee engagement you're trying to cultivate, do you observe within your team that it's those up and coming professionals in the organization who are really pushing the point, you know, saying, let's step up, let's do the right thing? I absolutely do. I, I think the we learn from our, our LPs and we learn from other GPs about what processes were working, what wasn't. And one of the key things we did was get buy-in up front. And the, the question on performance was describe our culture. And now people know how to do that at Tomorrow. We are huge into culture. 
And once again, asking them, well, is that culture consistent with this or not? Open-minded, creative, young, entrepreneurial, different. And, and it wasn't. So that buy-in really was the young people that now are much more developed individuals than the older generation. And it keeps improving and improving. You know, when I started working at Morgan Stanley in 1992, there were none of these conversations going on. Now young people really want to work in these really special environments and they want their jobs to make a difference just beyond capitalist performance. I had a young colleague come up to me last week and said, let's start recruiting in college. We have gone as early as we possibly can with the investment banks. And some of our peers are upset that we've gone that early. Basically, when they get a job, we kind of go there to improve our pool of diversity and candidates. We have nowhere to go, but now go to college and we'll probably do that. And that's an idea that came from a, one of our youngest members. Something that the three of us have discussed is the intersection between emerging managers and diverse managers. There's some overlap, but it's not perfect. I mean, uh, Teresa, I guess I'd wonder, what's your take on formally structured emerging manager programs relative to the goal of having more diversity in an LP's overall portfolio? Well, I, I do think it's important to recognize that, the, that a diverse manager may not necessarily be an emerging manager. And I think uh, Toma Bravo is a perfect example of that, as are other very large successful firms led by diverse CPs. And emerging managers often are not diverse. <laughs> so, so I know there's emerging manager programs that focus on diversity. We've chosen not to create an allocation to that. Uh, part of it is early days, the results were poor. Since we're uh, very focused on returns, there was an opportunity there. But it's also hard for a large allocator like us. We have to put six, seven billion a year to work in private equity. So we have to make commitments at scale, which means we have to typically back the larger kind of what I call institutional quality firms. And that's something we talked a lot about um, when, in the early work at the World Economic Forum in terms of gender equity is you know, there's a lot of women-owned firms that are out trying to raise capital, and they're trying to raise 200, 300 million for their first fund. And for us, our average bite size is about 200 million. There's just a complete mismatch between how we allocate capital and what their needs are. And when I first started really speaking out on gender equity, kind of the floodgates opened, and I had a lot of women managers coming to me saying, can't you back us? And I, I said, no, <laughs> I can't. We're a large institutional investor that has to put a lot of money to work. There are all kinds of other smaller investors that a $10 million commitment is meaningful. And if there's a 10X on it, it makes a huge difference in their portfolio. For us, that kind of small commitment makes no difference in our portfolio, even if it's a 10X. So I think part of it is for entrepreneurs, firms that are just getting started, whether they be female-led or led by a person of color, or I think they just have to be realistic and understand the source of capital is probably not going to be the large institutional investor unless they have an emerging market program and an allocation. But family offices that are committed to diversity and inclusion, smaller endowments, there's a lot of opportunity there. What we've chosen to focus on more is the larger firms and basically saying many of those firms were not diverse at all. And if we can improve the diversity of the GPs we're currently working with and create more opportunity for people 
as you know, so many of the emerging managers are people who've spun off from existing larger managers. So if we can help the entire ecosystem by focusing where our real strength and leverage is, which is on the larger firms, we still think we can be useful to the emerging manager. And as you say, you've got a platform, you've got to leverage the platform that you've got. Just to stay with that for a second, we've spent a lot of time talking about diversity within the GP, you know, diversity at the level of the managing partner, you know, the key persons. But I wonder whether we've missed a beat, not talking more about diversity at portfolio company leadership and how those boards, independent directors, that the GPs are in a position to appoint, how are they being selected? Can we have more diversity there? You've got that overall perspective, Teresa, as an allocator, you see what's going on in the public markets and where there's been a real push, even going so far as legislation. I know in the state of Washington, for example. So how do you think about it in the context of that board level diversity versus the public markets? Well, this has been a big push for us for a long time. And, you know, I kind of think of advocacy and action in two different buckets. I kind of think of advocacy as uh, getting our thoughts and our values out there and supporting the organizations that are working on those things like the 30% coalition and others. But then I think of action. And this is an area where I actually do think we've been able to, particularly in the public markets, do things, voting in our proxies, We actually, in our proxy policy, our board, they review our policy every couple of years, decided to strengthen our language around boards of directors and gender and racial diversity on boards. And we essentially vote against the chair of the nominating committee if there is no progress on diversity in the public companies. In the private company world, I've had a lot of conversation with GPs, and Orlando, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too, that actually think because uh, there's so much more staff turnover in a portfolio company level than say in a partnership, it's actually, it's a little bit lower bar, it's easier to get diversity at the portfolio company level, maybe than it is in even within the GP firm itself. And again, I don't consider that bad. I said, you know, wherever we can promote it, let's do it. Again, getting back to the leverage power, a portfolio company that builds a culture that Orlando has described of inclusion, of curiosity, of entrepreneurship, that gets baked in in the really early days of a firm. And a GP can have huge influence on whether it's a startup or a growth equity play, or whether it's taking a large company private and reconfiguring the management team uh, to be successful. There's all kinds of opportunity to create a culture that when that small company grows into a big company, they have a really healthy, diverse culture baked in right from the beginning. So I think it's maybe even more important to encourage GPs to recognize the leverage they have in building great companies of tomorrow with diverse workforces, even more so than what happens at the partnership level. Orlando, I'm sure you wanna jump in on that, particularly given the nature of the companies that you're working with. How is, how is that conversation playing out with the boards of your portfolio companies? Teresa, you said it extremely well in terms of the portfolio companies. We have huge influence over them. See, on the public companies, their proxies, their shareholders, their directors. Here, private equity, we own the whole company. It's an amazing influence. I, I had somebody tell me that because a lot of what we do is we're in a growth space or our companies hopefully are multiplying that growth and then we're adding out and doing out on acquisitions, which means that they'll hopefully turn out to be a very large company. 
from a medium one. And I had somebody tell me once, well, once they're large, it's going to be this way. And that does not need to be the case at all. Sure, if you do nothing about it, it'll be that way. But you can really, really influence the outcome. Our space in software is a perfect example. Software and technology in general, for one reason or another, have been these clubs in Silicon Valley that are relatively closed. And you know what? People don't like it that way. That's the way it's been. That's the way a bit it currently is. And, and people are genuinely trying to change that. Now, the very large tech players, Facebook, Apple, Google, and all those companies we know, they have the manpower to really change the, their game in this. They have teams of people looking at different geographic locations, looking at diversity, very good programs set up in these companies. But then most of the world that is just struggling to meet that quarter, they don't have the benefits of that, the brand name, the ability to do this. So guess what? As a partner, that's another value add that the GP gives them. They want that. They welcome that. That's something that you're not pushing upon your company. It makes them for a better culture, for a better company. We're doing this program, great program with SEO, where our portfolio companies can then recruit this great pool of talent that comes in vetted with interest, with resumes. And we originally thought it was going to be eight companies. We're way oversubscribed. Most of our companies want to participate and they have a lot more openings than we even have candidates. So that's one example of when you introduce it to a company, a set of companies, that's another, just like your metrics are value added, these initiatives really add a lot to them. You know, and I also heard one of the, one of the GPs that presented to us recently was describing their work on portfolio company boards and creating their own database of underrepresented candidates and had developed a database of like 1,200 to 1,400 good candidates and have, it's still early days, but have, have placed like 24, 25 in a fairly short period of time, simply by creating that database, making it available to the portfolio companies, and then giving them an opportunity to go out and, and find really highly qualified candidates. And I've heard of similar efforts in terms of both the C-suite as well, uh, trying to make sure the C-suite has access to good, good candidates and underrepresented groups. My hope, Teresa, is the work that that GP has done to compile those candidates is the sort of thing that is shared more broadly, right? Because we do, we do hear a lot of talk, even thinking about C-suite and board level appointments, that it's hard to find that talent. So the more that we can kind of aggregate this information, I think the better off the whole industry will be. I think so. And I, it's almost like, is it a public good versus a competitive <laughs> good among the GPs? But, you know, I also do think there's a public company pressure does flow through to the private companies so that, in other words, you have good governance in the portfolio company. When they go public, it's going to be a lot easier for them to handle the shareholder pressure that they're going to get as a publicly held company. So I think some of, you know, some of this works backwards into the into the private company arena because public companies are used to this kind of stakeholder pressure all the time. But I agree with Orlando that you actually have a lot more control over that. You have, you know, much tighter governance and better aligned governance in the private sector or in the private equity space than in the public space. We talked a little bit about culture, but I think it's interesting to see the interplay between culture during a pandemic 
and technology's role, right? So Orlando, I was going to ask you about the silver lining coming out of all of this, uh, having your team at home, remote, uh, and where does tech fit into that for Tomo Bravo or kind of more broadly as you see it? Look, you know, I, I use that line with, with our team and with some of our investors that in private equity, culture is not the most important thing. It's the only thing. You have equally dedicated, smart, educated, hardworking groups of people in thousands of private equity firms. And for some reason, there are some that always come up with the performance, that are always ethical, that present less problems. It's just the way it is. That's the differentiator. So it's something that we just focus on so much. So in this pandemic, for example, me and the other managing partners, we were on Zoom all the time with our first year associates uh, that uh, we would like to impart upon them how we talk to management, how we talk to people in the banking community, how we communicate with LPs. What are our values? What do we find important in a company? And what do we find less important so, so don't bother with it? And we were really nervous about what was going to happen without the face-to-face -face interaction. It has turned out great. You get many little interactions daily and everybody's available, I guess, 24 seven, because there's not that much to do on Saturday and Sunday. So without intruding on people's personal lives, and we made that known, let us know if we're uh, taking out a bad time, you can start really um, doing that at least as effectively as the way we were doing before. What opened up therefore for us based on this is we're thinking, how would a hybrid model work and could we therefore recruit from different geographies and not quote unquote force people to move to San Francisco, California, where they need to be physically present in order to do their job. We also thought about the college recruiting angle, which really fits into that, which just makes your pool broader and may get other people interested in, in you that otherwise uh, it would have been too difficult for them. You know, if I could just add on a little bit to that, um, we formed our first diversity, equity, and inclusion committee uh, a little over a year ago. And as they've been working on, you know, what they think their role is in the organization, they ultimately came back to me and said, we think our number one job is to influence culture. That culture is so critical, particularly to attracting people of color just having an open, accepting culture where diverse views and backgrounds are embraced, celebrated, acknowledged, that that could be the number one contribution they could make to our organization. The other comment I wanna make on what you've said is in terms of location, that's also something we thought about. I remember, you know, I worked in tech. I worked for a tech company for about seven years before I came to the state investment board. So I was really comfortable with remote working. You know, a lot of people work remotely, including me. I managed a team in Baltimore and Ann Arbor, Michigan from, you know, my ranch in Olympia, Washington. So, um, but when I came to the WSIB, that was a completely foreign concept. Everyone was in one building in Olympia and we struggled with recruitment um, because, you know, it's a smaller community and not everybody wants to live in Olympia. And so once we opened an office in Seattle, 
that helped our diversity and inclusion <laughs> statistics a lot because you know we just had a broader group to uh, of candidates to draw from and who wanted to live in an urban center so i think technology is giving the opportunity for that and it's going to make it even easier to build diverse workforces across the globe such an excellent point um, that you can you can pull talent from just about anywhere now because the proof of concept we've got it that teams can absolutely work well like this. I want to go back to technology for a second. Orlando, I would be remiss if I didn't give you the opportunity to share some of what you're seeing more broadly in the software space and the outlook for that sector. It's been such a bright spot in so many LPs portfolios during the pandemic. A lot of LPs have come to appreciate that they might have a little bit less exposure to tech than they would have liked going into the pandemic. What are some of the big trends that you see being accelerated, aside from the obvious, now that we're all working remotely, um, but some of the big trends that you're keeping an eye on that you think will have persistence beyond the pandemic? Yeah, you know, the, the pandemic proved once again for the third time that recurring revenue in the right software companies is the business. It's running your critical business processes. And if that company is going to stay in business, they're going to pay you that subscription service for it. And there were a lot of hedge fund blogs that coming into the pandemic said it's going to be different this time. And that did not make sense to us, just like it didn't do in the financial crisis, just like it didn't in the dot-com bubble burst. And once again, it proved to be so critical for companies that they kept that. That created an environment where valuations went up again. <laughs> due to that stability and resiliency. If you can think about not being impacted during a pandemic, I mean, that means you're a really resilient, good business, right? The second thing that the sector proved, and Teresa, you mentioned it from working at a tech company, is these companies can function working remotely. They can sell their products, they can service their customers, they can produce new product. So all those people that are stationed, especially in sales in every geography and territory, they could just do it using technology instead of having the face-to-face -face, uh, communication. But the most important thing is the sector proved that it had so many solutions to the problems of today. That positively surprised us, including some of our portfolio companies, like cybersecurity and hospitals. That meant that doctors or nurses would only log in once to a given hospital and could perform their jobs. Instead of as they were moving from institution to institution, wasting so much time, proving their identity. Things like that were so, so powerful. And therefore, just from that anecdote, it created an environment where CEOs of major corporations accelerated their investments in quote unquote going digital. They don't want any systems in-house, they don't want in-house IT, they don't want any more servers. Those were hard environments to work through. They want it all in the cloud and they want their business processes as automated as possible. So you get that other growth curve and innovation. And now we're really at the point where I, I believe that in five years, institutional investors will not think of software as an industry. They'll think of it as a business model. You may be a financial services firm that services your customers with a financial business model, but it's software that differentiates you. Or you may be a software firm that sells all the financial service firms your products so they can be more efficient or reach their customers better. And that is, the space right now is the best we've we've ever seen it. It's it's almost like we have a social responsibility to do really well in this space because of the opportunity that was given to us right now. 
I want to bring it back to diversity and inclusion and drill down a bit into the specifics and the details. You've both mentioned some things that your organizations are doing. Teresa, I wanted to ask you, is there anything in particular you've seen your managers do that you would call out as a great example of what's possible? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, again, going from advocacy to action, we all know, you know, what gets measured gets managed. And so actually tracking and producing metrics, whether it's just for internal use or whether it's um, to report to the LP community, we're seeing a lot more uh, metrics being captured. We're seeing performance pay tied to diversity goals. So that's definitely putting your money where your mouth is. <laughs> We've seen the Rooney Rule. You know, if you're recruiting for a board, you have to have two diverse candidates in that pool. We're seeing behavioral bias training to acknowledge that we all have it. We're all subject to it. Um, but how can we design processes that remove behavioral biases from the hiring process? I think uh, one of the examples Orlando gave, which is most encouraging to me, is widening the pool of talent you draw from. Because again, one of the things when we first started the conversation on gender equity is private equity primarily pulled from investment banking and investment banking had a very poor record of, of both gender and ethnic diversity. And so that was a very small pool to draw from trying to get more creative and talent can come from all different kinds of backgrounds. Um, and those technical skills can be trained. So broadening uh, the hiring pool. And then I think some of the, you know, some of the early um, things that came out, you know, four or five years ago that I still think were innovative by some of the large companies is for women as they uh, reach their childbearing years, making sure that they were not mommy tracked in the organization, but were, given important uh, deals to work on, and then given the support to be able to accomplish that at the same time as they're raising their families. Extended maternity leave, making sure that paternity leave was paid attention to. So I think there's just been, you know, there's been a lot of really creative solutions that frankly are making a difference and are really encouraging to me. What you said is so good about broadening the pool. That is, that is the key. That, that's a game changer in a way. And, and for us, I was trying to see how we could get the team buy-in early enough on this. And one of the things I would hear in the hallways is culture fit. We're so into culture and we have such a good culture. So we're looking for people that fit our culture. And this young, uh, really talented person in our team said, hey, when you think about this, discuss it to the team that they should not think about culture fit, they should think about culture add. Because culture is always evolving and people have their imprints on a culture. Your values and principles may be the same, but that, that evolves over time. And then once people got uh, bought into that, it wasn't one of the senior members of the organization that said, let's go recruiting college, let's do things differently. It was the junior people the younger people that want to do it, which I think is just absolutely awesome. To take it in a slightly different direction, Teresa, what do you think about diversity within the LP community? What are LPs doing themselves to become more diverse? Well, one of the first things I said to my board when I first started stepping out on the gender equity issue is we've got to get our own house in order. And I was strongly encouraged by the board then several years later 
to work on uh, racial and ethnic diversity. And that was, you know, part of the reason for launching the DEI committee and community, coming up with the policy, looking at our HR actions in that area. We've done really well in terms of bringing people in, people of color in and underrepresented groups in. We're not doing as well at promoting. And so that's something that I'm pretty committed to, uh, to, to try and develop advancement opportunities so that our uh, executive staff looks more like the rest of our organization. It's strongly female, we've accomplished that, but uh, we don't have a person of color on my executive team and that's something that bothers me a lot. So I think, uh, I think that the LP community, if we're gonna ask the GPs to do this, we gotta do this, we, we have to take the same steps and work work through the same set of issues. How do you keep, promote, and encourage those diverse candidates and create that environment in which diverse candidates can really be successful? I guess this also keys off of what Teresa was just saying. Yeah, you know, you, you have to have both role models and a clear system of mentorship. We have, on purpose, kept the team as small and manageable as possible. Because our thought is that that way, this team can focus on what really matters. Not a lot of other tasks that could be important, but are not really the priority. So that structure combined with a team structure where everyone has direct line of sight from origination to deal to the performance of that deal by sub-industry groups. So we have many teams. We actually did this by design before it was popular. Now it's very popular in the tech community to work in very small project teams. But because we're set up that way, it really helps us absorb new people and have them not get lost in the system. You know who exactly the mentor is, who's responsible for the performance of that person. And when they need more help, we really focus as well on giving them a soft landing. We give them a lot of responsibility and authority but give them a soft landing into it as well. And if there are any issues, it completely gets brought up and we handle them. And that system for us has produced no turnover. So we're very watchful right now as we are improving our diversity, our inclusion, our other metrics to make sure we keep it that way, regardless of the background of the person. Such an excellent point to end on. I wanted to say thank you to both of you for such an excellent discussion today. Thank you so much. Thank you.